London Diary, 5th of November, 1979. At lunchtime, I left the drawing office with Don, and we sat in his car on the Uxbridge Road. We smoked up a couple of blazing joints and talked the inevitable nonsense. Don's a squatter. He lives in an abandoned hospital with a wife and three children. We have our own ward, he said to me once, named after uh, Alexander Fleming. Come around and check it out. What are the visiting hours? We both laughed. The car, a Mark III Zephyr, filled up quickly with heavy fumes as we played a game of Flying Fox. The Flying Fox is an imaginary Austro-Hungarian family of trapeze artists. Don says, name the flyer that left for health reasons. The sick fuck. The flyer that lost his voice. The dumb fuck. The flyer that ran off and found religion. Holy fuck. <laughs> and so on. When you're stoned, it's positively hilarious. <laughs> we went back to the drawing office at half past one, and Don's desk was gone. Not moved. Gone. And the space closed up as if he had never been there at all. Don was so totally out of it that he had difficulty imagining his existence as it had been two hours earlier. He kept saying, this is peculiar, and how am I supposed to deal with this? I sent Don back to his car. Don't worry, I said, I'll sort it out. I went to see the chief engineer, Alan Mack. Alan has a boxy office, heated to extravagant temperatures by a giant cast iron radiator. He leaves sweaty prints on everything he touches. Nobody ever shakes his hand. What happened to Don's desk? Bad show, heave-ho. He actually talks like that. Did he, did he do something wrong? Alan touched his nose with an index finger. The hush-hush boys were here, he said, referring to security. Silly sod, buggered himself. Alan closed the door to his office and explained. Apparently Don was attending anti-nuke rallies, and this was very bad form if you worked in the atomic industry. <laughs> Peace chappies have gone to war with us, Alan said. Look, there's, there's no way he can come back. Alan shook his head. Look, I thought the English always gave a man a second chance. No. That's the Americans. Now follow me, old bee. I followed Alan down through the busy drawing office and into the lift. We went up to the fourth floor, the model room. The entire Sellafield complex, miniaturized, made from blue cardboard Fomex, sprawled out before us on 2,500 square feet of pristine white linoleum. Like a fat, sweaty Gulliver, Alan carefully stepped over the buildings. 
he took out a two-meter pointing stick from a hook on the wall and planted himself firmly in the middle of the Irish Sea. He waved the stick over Cumbria like some deranged magician and then finally pointed it at the golf ball dome that shielded the UK's top atomic secrets. I'm giving you the conveyor system in the AGR, boy. Isn't that Don's area? This is promotion, OB. Promotion. More buttons, too. Buttons? What's the Gaelic for money? Arrogant, I replied. Arrogant. I like the sound of that. You'll be getting more arrogant. How much more? I could feel I wasn't doing a very good job defending Don's interests here. I should say an extra £1.50 per hour. With the tip of his stick, Alan lifted the cardboard dome and exposed the advanced gas cool reactor. He revealed an aluminium ball wrapped with tiny red and blue pipes. You'll be handling the spent fuel cells, uranium dioxide, as black as your Irish heart. You know what that gives you, don't you, O.B.? Now what? More fucking power than the PM. Use it wisely. Under the hard fluorescent lighting, his laughing face looked distorted and deviant. He pulled the mini reactor out on the tip of his stick and tossed it into my direction. They say if you spend long enough working in the nuclear power industry, eventually you will have your strange love moment. This was mine. I caught the reactor, fired it back. Alan swung the stick and smacked it into the Firth of Forth. Hoza! He roared in pure delight, and he was no longer a middle-aged man in a ratty cardigan, but an excited schoolboy, cocking it off a splice at St. Peter's of York. His eyes sparkled because it was all a game. Everything. His father owned a small shirt factory somewhere up north and it took years of careful saving to send him to Cambridge, to an ill-fitting world of books and buggery where he descended into the well-dug grave of civil engineering. He was angry at everything, but he hid it beneath a smile. He once asked me what my college was like in Ireland. When I explained that it was a small, concrete institution where car mechanics and bookkeepers learned how to wield wrenches and sharpen pencils, he seemed envious. I had nothing to live up to, I guess. He hung the two-meter stick on the wall and said, uh, You'll speak to Don. Tell him he's not coming back. The suggestion came out of nowhere, and I was surprised. Don considers me a friend. Rotten show, I know, but somebody has to stick his finger up the budgie's arse. He plodded off through the Lake District and then stomped over the Yorkshire Dales on his way to the exit. He paused and looked back at me. You see it as treachery. And of course, that is precisely what it is. But you should take it out of the English copybook. We see perfidy as a routine daily event. It's like shopping for groceries or changing your socks. Although, come to think of it, sock changing is more of a weekly event in England. 
As he closed the door, he shouted back, Think of the arrogant, my boy. Think of the arrogant. Left alone, my conscience. Bad company at the best of times. I reassembled the damaged reactor and prepared for the fallout that would surely follow. Don was sitting in his car on the Uxbridge Road, staring fixedly out the women at a woman in a sari who was slapping a child on the legs. I got into the passenger seat and he immediately asked me about uh, the situation. I tried my best, you know, cutbacks, you know. With unexpected violence and absolutely no warning, he slammed his head against the steering wheel. The horn beeped and the woman in the sari dragged her child to safety where she beat him some more. <laughs> My wife is a darling. This is gonna break her heart. What do I do? I'm 32 years old. You still have time left, I said. We both laughed, but it was a flat sort of laughter. The kind of you hear at a funeral, or coming from a bank manager's office. <laughs> Don pulled a joint from the glove compartment. Smoke? I shook my head and said no. I had a job to get back to. I just didn't tell him it was his. <laughs> Maybe I should come with you and have a little chat with Alan Mack. If I told him about my situation, no, no, uh, not a good idea, I said, perhaps a little too hastily. Don squinted at me, as if he sensed something amiss. He lit the joint and sucked back the smoke. His mind was evidently spinning. If it really had been a case of cutbacks, they, would keep me, uh, they wouldn't have kept me and disposed of him. With his striped socks and frayed lapels peppered with dandruff, he was not pretty psyched, but he was better at his job than I ever would be, and he knew it. Let's play one last game of flying fucks. Look, I, I really have to get back to the office. Come on, for old time's sake. It seemed mean to deny him this one little thing. Okay, I said, shoot. What was the name of the flyer that fell and couldn't get up? Don stared into my eyes with the beginning of a smirk on his lips. I have no idea. It's a good one. Think about it. We said goodbye. I headed back towards the office on Delamere Road. The rickety Zephyr engine started up behind me, and a tire screeched against the curbstone. The flyer that fell and couldn't get up, I said aloud. I looked back and the Zephyr was gone. The woman in the sari and the child were gone. The wind twisted some crisp bags up into the air outside the Hambra Tavern. A small group of children in grey uniforms walked over the canal bridge, laughing at each other tossing a plastic bag filled with oranges back and forth between them. When it landed in the gutter, they walked away, pretending it wasn't theirs. I crossed the bridge with quickened step, 
paused for a moment and looked at the bag of oranges. Something flickered. I saw instead a fallen man in persimmon tunic, prostrate and motionless in the middle of a sawdust ring. Up above, an empty trapeze swayed back and forth. The other flying fucks clustered around on the wires and looked down at their fatally fallen companion. And then I got it. Yes, I did. I understood exactly why Doc was smirking. It all made sense in an instant. It was I. I was the man who lost his grip and tumbled to his doom. I was the man sprawled in the dirt and the flyer that fell and couldn't get up. I was the lying fuck. <laughs>